much about <clears throat> George Bataille. Bataille was born 1897 and died in 1962 in, Bil in Bilham, France. His works are, include literature, art, philosophy, economics, sociology, and anthropology. He wrote essays, novels, poetry, theory, brief, and he briefly attended a Catholic seminary. He later became a controversial, even somewhat satanic figure. Sartre described him as an advocate of mysticism. Bataille was influenced by Hegel, Marx, Maus, Desaad, Kojeb, and Nietzsche. In turn, he influenced Foucault, Derrida, Lacan, and Agambe's ideas of sovereignty. He was famous for his literature of transgression and pornography. After the war, he published his most famous work, a three-volume work called The Accursed Share. The Accursed Share opposed scarcity and austerity with excess, modes of cons conservation with spectacle. For consumption, he replaced consummation, mixing waste with use. The Accursed Share, volume one of a three-volume work, was general economy. Bataille vehemently opposed any form of austerity as doomed to failure. Classic economic theory of capitalism is built on scarcity and must be overthrown, or the accursed share is destined to be spent on more and crises. Bataille favors luxurious spending without profit or use as the building of pyramids or the Roman spectacles. Spending must be on arts and not on useful projects. Bataille would favor a Trump border wall, for example, if it were built of gold, ivory, and other precious metals. As a follower of Mouse the Gift, this would be fitting for Bataille. In overturning classical economy, Bataille also seeks to overturn ethics. Economist, economies are based on economics are based on this, and here Bataille turns to Nietzsche's genealogy of good and evil. Volume two is devoted to sexuality and eros. In brief, Bataille applies the same principles of economy of use and waste to the economy of sexuality. Thus, he dismisses sexuality as reproduction and thus useful. Bataille asserts that sexuality is incompatible with thought, and eros is good because profligate and useless, wasteful and luxurious. Pornography belongs to eros in most cases. Finally, his volume three, he calls neg the negative sovereignty of communism. Writing in the 40, 1940s, Bataille says, today's sovereignty is no longer alive except in the perspectives of communism. He goes on to explore what communism ultimately means. There follows an analysis and summary of Stalin's views from 1917 to the present, 1947, for which Bataille has been routinely and severely criticized by Sartre and others. 
as he traces feudalism and sovereignty in Russia. Some of the concerns are transgressions of sovereigns and the individual sovereignty. The negative sovereignty of communism leads to the unequal humanity of men. And that's just a brief look at Bataille. I'll turn it over to Despina, okay. who's now going to speak on capitalism. The most recent capitalist crisis bears all the characteristics of a widespread, all-encompassing social breakdown, economic, social, political, and ideological. What Gramsci described as organic crisis. Such a crisis entails a crisis of hegemony since the ruling classes appear unable to work out the systemic contradictions underlying these recurring breakdowns. The widespread revolts we have seen around the world the past decade or so are the direct result of this organic crisis and often the result of less boisterous, more placid processes of reflection, deepening of political thought and organization. Emergent counter-hegemonic responses may point to the direction of a new age, a historically liminal period. Thank you, Chris, for reading the first paragraph of the, the paper. Uh, so uh, the title, as uh, Chris just said, The Age of uh, Revolt and the Organic Origins and Counter-Hegemonic Responses. As I started sort of writing the short paper, uh, I realized that the direction was going more and the, uh, sort of like the, the, the resistance and also the, the, uh, the challenges that the various movements derive various like uh, uh, revolts we, we experience around the world these days are up to and not so much on the characteristics of, of those uh, revolts and uprisings themselves, even though like, I will be making references to those. Uh, and the, the idea here, the discussion basically revolves uh, very much around uh, Gramsci's uh, concept of the, uh, of the passive revolution and on the other side try to explain uh, the extreme center, how it sort of came into place and uh, how it sort of has created the environment within which these uh, revolts and uprisings uh, operate. So I, I might, uh, if you don't mind, I'll just read again the, uh, what Chris just read. So the most recent capitalist crisis bears all the characteristics of a widespread, all-encompassing social breakdown, economic, social, political, and ideological. Again, what Gramsci describes as organic crisis. This is a crisis of hegemony uh, since the ruling classes appear unable to work out the systemic contradictions that underline the recurring breakdowns of the capitalist system. The widespread revolts we have seen around the world the past decade or so, a direct result of this organic crisis and often the result of less boisterous like processes of reflection, deepening of political thought and organization. <coughs> Emergent counter-hegemonic responses may point to the direction of a new age, a historically again, liminal uh, period. I'll start with Napoleon here. Uh, who would say that a revolution, a revolution is an opinion that has got its hands on some bayonets. Uh, and sure enough, our struggles and violence, preparedness to give one's life, have been at the heart of revolts, rebellions, and uprisings, which nonetheless, either defeated or victorious, did not evolve into full-blown revolutions. That is, regime change or the capitulation and collapse of whole socioeconomic and political systems. For a revolution to take place, a revolutionary situation must arise. In Lenin's words, the bottoms don't want and the tops cannot live in the old way. Or in some more detail, it is not enough for the exploited and oppressed masses to realize the impossibility of living in the old way and demand change, but also that the ruling classes find it impossible to maintain their rule without any change. The suffering and want of the, of the oppressed must have grown so acute that the masses without complaint, uh, who, who without complaint allowed themselves to be robbed in peacetime are driven into independent historical action. 
So symptomatic of any genuine revolution is a rabbit tenfold and even hundredfold increase in the size of the working and oppressed masses, so far apathetic, who are capable of waging the political struggle, weakening the government and making it possible to rapidly overthrow it. In other words, the subjective conditions for a social revolution should also come into place. Revolutionary consciousness, the readiness and determination of the working classes in unity, organized and led, according always to Lenin, by the vanguard party. Capitalism and its neoliberal variant is at the crossroad. The financial crisis of 2008, the rise of right-wing populism in Western Europe and the US, the Arab uprising, and new reforms of struggle on local, but also global, level point to that direction. The financial meltdown has revealed the structural instabilities of de deregulated capital flows. The tendency towards increased authoritarianism and obsession with security shows the limits of the institutions of bourgeois democracy to absorb mass discontent. An organic crisis, one I think would agree that is underway. At the same time, popular revolutions as the Arab Spring, movements such as the Indignados, the Aganactismeni in Greece, Occupy Wall Street and Gezi Park protest in uh, Turkey, or more recently, the Yellow Vest in France, suggest that people are awake. The objective and subjective factors, and may not all agree on that, appear to be in place, or at least in motion. The old appears to be dying, and the new is having a difficulty uh, in being delivered. What are these movements and uprisings up against, however, and when not outright counter-revolutions, as in the case of Egypt? It is primarily up against a more subtle and quiet revolution that these movements and uprisings are, a passive revolution that works to restore and reorganize class power, a revolution that includes revolutionary elements in the sense that transforms the social relations of production, for instance, and restoration, that means maintenance and continuity of power structures without significant subaltern empowerment. The process is led by the state, which replaces social groups in leading the renewal process and is most often tied to key events, such as revolts, urban riots, and so forth, that serve as punctual moments in history. The concept developed by Gramsci, of course, was employed to capture various revolutions from above in, direct in different historical times and places, including early 20th century America and Fordism. In this case, it refers to a generalized means of straight statecraft in the expansion of capitalism, but with pacifying reforms which were themselves a response to pressures from below. During that time, the threat of communism and the Bolshevik example forced governments to take reformist steps to absorb working class radicalism through limited means of wealth redistribution. In this sense, the revolution of 1917 had served as another key moment in history. For most of the Western world, this new era of passive revolution was experienced as a relative progressive development, largely exemplified by Keynesianism. This served to counter discontent and expand capitalism while offering limited consensus to the working classes. It offset more radical demands without offering, however, meaningful political inclusion or economic justice. This compromise between welfare state and capitalism was short-lived, of course, as Gramsci had anticipated. Now, early in the 1970s, economic growth of the 30 prior golden years was becoming clear that could not be sustained. At the same time, protests and urban riots pointed to the direction of a troubling future for the capitalist democracies of the West. In the aftermath of the protest of the 1968, and as the US was entering the first economic crisis following the war, a what was called a trilateral commission, a non-governmental, non-partisan discussion group, was founded by David Rockefeller in July 1973. The objective here was to foster closer cooperation among Japan, Western Europe, and North America. Two years later, there is a report by the title The Crisis of Democracy on the Governmentality of Democracies was published. Samuel Huntington was actually one of its authors. 
Among it, uh, other things, it suggested that the problems of governance in the US uh, stem from the excesses of democracy, and thus advocated to restore the prestige of authority and authority of central government institutions. The revolts of the 1960s were understood as the excesses of democracy, which if not fixed, would be a challenge to international trade, balanced budgets, and hegemonic world power. Less than 20 years later, and after the end of the Cold War, would Huntington, of course, would argue that people's cultural and religious identities would be the primary source of conflict. This was meant to be a post-political era where the possibilities of parliamentary democracy <coughs> were, were gradually transferred to technocrats and political experts. I think we should think of passive revolution basically as a process. Uh, it, its timing also differs from country to country. In the case of Greece, for instance, uh, very much like any other Southern European countries, this process of balancing democracy's excesses started later. Up until the beginnings of the new millennium, uh, a sense of stability was still in place, though the transition from the Keynesian economics of the 80s to rampant neoliberalism was being completed. Entering the Euro family in 2002 would accelerate the process, while the first signs of discontent would anticipate the eruption of the financial crisis. As Poulantzaski has suggested, uprisings need not to wait for economic crisis after all. The insurrection of 2008, following the murder of 15-year-old Alexis Grigoropoulos by two cops, would set the gears of the passive revolution in quick motion. The protests and riots that spread across the country, coupled with the occupation of universities, targeted much more than the police here. A statement in the Greek anarchist magazine, Flesh Machine, evaluated, and I quote here, the revolt was in fact a rebellion against property and alienation, a revolt of the gift against the sovereignty of money, an insurrection of anarchy of use value against the democracy of exchange value a spontaneous rising of collective freedom against the, the rationality of individual discipline. We will not dialogue with the state. We will not sit down to chat the capital, with capital. We will not tell them what we want because they already know. We want them to die. Now, while led by anarchists and leftist groups, the riots drew into the streets people from all walks of life a widespread feeling of frustration due to the rising unemployment and the prospects of a bleak future altogether, especially among the younger generations, was pervasive. The crisis that was to fully unravel the coming years would have a punitive role. Crisis, in general, in the language of mainstream economics, appear, after all, as punishment for government failing to respect the natural laws of the markets. The memorandum era, has had as its object objective to tilt the balance between capitalism and democracy, after all, while the state took up the new hegemonic role. It devalued the cost of labor and tightened its control over it, redistributed wealth in the interest of the big capital, while developing into a police state where protests could be, would be effectively suppressed before they evolved into insurrections and revolts like the one that shook the country in 2008. Now, a crisis is not a permanent situation. It is an abnormal period that prepares, however, a new normalcy. Gone unchallenged, the organic crisis can lead to further strengthening of the grip of capitalism. It is unclear, however, how or which political bodies can carry out that resistance in representative democracies where parties no longer serve the interest of the classes they purportedly represent. The extreme center, a notion coined by historian Pierre Cernat in his seminal war on the French Revolution and most recently popularized by Tariq Ali, neither left nor right, as Macron most explicitly had cast his candidacy, vows to defend the freedom of the markets as well as those of the people, to impose an austere diet on the bloated public sector while also investing in the environmental, health, and agricultural sectors, as Macron again promised during his campaign. Unrestricted by utopianisms and political ideologies long vilified by their detachment from the realities of the present, or worse, for totalitarian tendencies, 
The extreme center swears to pragmatism, fiscal responsibility, and public order. Democracy, as we know it, is effectively suspended, especially in states like Greece, Portugal, or Spain, uh, and uh, others, which have been turned into debt collecting agency, Italy, which have been turned into debt collective agencies uh, on behalf of global oligarchy or investors. Political parties guarantee that electoral pressures will not disrupt the markets, setting them, the markets, setting them free from political interference. International institutions such as the European Commission or the European Court of Justice guarantee that the decision centers have been moved from parliaments to non-elected bodies. Resistant policies or any action to improve this political, social or economic order is alleged to result in the exact opposite of what was intended. Attempts at social transformation will produce no effect whatsoever. Will simply be incapable of making a dent in the status quo. The cost of the proposed reform is una unacceptable because it will endanger previous hard won accomplishments. This is the reactionary repertoire, actually, accor according to Albert Hirschman perversity, futility, and jeopardy, fully employed by the extreme center that works to discredit politics as disruptive, ineffective, and even counterproductive. What is, however, the extreme center, and how did it emerge as the uncontested, though terribly fragile, victor of the end of the history? Following the Cold War, a critique of totalitarianism equated with Nazi terror and Stalinism was employed to legitimize the emergent neoliberal order and immunize the ideological goals of liberalism against both fascism and communism. In several Western countries, uh, this totalitarian de debate had already started in the 1970s and coincided with the crisis of Marxism, allowing the conservative turn of a significant section of the left intelligentsia towards a quiet, conventional form of classical liberalism or even of anti-communist conservatism. That being said, the Marxist critique of totalitarianism as universal reification and the transformation of instrumental rationality into social and political irrationalism had nothing to do with the defense of classical liberalism and the equation of communism with fascism and totalitarianism. The conservative revolt of the 1980s wore the habits of anti-totalitarianism and human rights, disconnected, however, from social and economic justice. The discourse of violence, espoused with an aggressive historical revisionism, has been further employed to discredit political resistance, defined as potentially violent and fundamental opposition to the existing order. Along the same lines, anti-fascism, for instance, has been equated with fascism. Liberal anti-totalitarianism is prone to portray movements and activism against the rising tide of extremism as violent, non-dialectical, and authoritarian. The European efforts, largely, largely initiated by the Baltic countries most recently, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, to establish 20, the 23rd of August as a day for the commemoration of the victims of Stalinism and Nazism, for instance, observed since, nine, since 2009 by the European Commission and the European Council, and adopted by law in nine European countries, that's Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Croatia, Slovenia, Poland, Hungary, uh, Bulgaria, and uh, then Sweden, has, a, has as, as its target not merely historical memory, but social movements of the present. At the same time, whitewashes fascism while relativizing and lightening the stigma attached to the ultimate evil of Nazism. The extreme right is an integral part of the passive revolution, working alongside the state and the neoliberal center. In its neo-fascist version, the extreme right turns again the liberal representative democracy with violent means. In the case of the post-fascist parties, which have left behind the interwar nostalgia in favor of an agenda that focuses on law and order and immigration, the attacks take the form of undermining the representative democracy from within. The rise of nationalistic, xenophobic, and in some cases, Nazi nostalgic parties in the mainstream politics of Europe point precisely to that direction. 
Now, since the pressures of international financial capital and its subservient elites continue without a doubt, without a doubt, uh, with the same, if not greater, intensity, new cycles of social mobilization and resistance movements pick up again. The Yellow Vest movement, the most recent events in Algeria and Sudan, I think, are indicative. There are no roadmaps, however, as to how the revolts of our times can evolve into full-blown revolutions that could reverse the destructive part, path in which we are. The Occupy Wall Street movement, Indignados, Gezi Park, all the movements I already mentioned, which have appeared in the West, as well as the revolutionary wave that spread in the Arab world during the last decade, did not inscribe themselves uh, into a historical continuity necessarily. Certainly did not claim the legacy of the October Revolution. They were compelled to reinvent themselves. Their freedom and creativity is promising, but their ephemeral character is alarming. In order to build so solid structures and engaging perspectives, they will have to work through the communist and anarchist experiences of the past. While we have no guides to action in the future, we can continue theorizing, however, about what has happened in the past on our way to developing new revolutionary strategies for the future on the streets. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker, and I apologize for <coughs> mispronouncing your name. Oh, no, no, Professor that's the, the American, I mean, uh, they say Gandhi in, uh, yeah. here all, all the time, don't worry. In Italian it's Gulli, but uh, it's, it's not a problem. Professor Gulli will speak next. The title of his talk is Singularity and the Politics of Number. What he will do is call into question the concept of the independent and sovereign individual of the liberal and neoliberal tradition. He will do so by calling into question the politics of number from the point of view of the ontology of the singularity. By ontology of singularity, he means the plural constitution of what appears to be one, an individual, a mere this. Accordingly, the ontology of singularity is also an ontology of trans-individuality. Thank you. Ah, yes. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. And uh, so then I will uh, do questions later for uh, this panel. Yes, we'll do that. Well, I mean, uh, my, my talk, well, uh, as um, you, uh, Chris, uh, anticipate, will be different from uh, your uh, great uh, talk. But, uh, you know, it will be more than uh, about politics uh, as such, right? Uh, maybe I stand, uh, the ontology, let's say, of a political ontology, okay? So, uh, it, it is based, I don't have a paper to, to read, I mean, I will have many things, but uh, it is based on my research current research right now, the book that I'm writing. Uh, so the title is uh, almost the same as the title of uh, the talk. It's only singularities uh, in the plural and the politics of number. Okay, so what that means, again, uh, in the book as well that I'm writing right now, uh, one of the main uh, um, uh, theses is precisely this uh, of uh, calling into question the notion of uh, the independent sovereign individual of the liberal and the neoliberal tradition. And uh, again, uh, so I, I do so by, um, uh, you know, uh, engaging the ontology of singularity, which is the plural constitution. So what does it mean to say that something appears only to be one, an individual in a mere this? So I will uh, read uh, the, 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 the substantive uh, abstract that I have, uh, and then I highlight some connections to uh, philosophers that uh, I am engaging in my work, okay, and the conceptual connections, of course. So to continue from what you said, Chris, uh, so singularity, I say singularity, I don't know if this is, I mean, I'm working on the question of singularity, which I see as completely in, uh, different from uh, the question of uh, individuality, and I can, uh, you know, elaborate on that. First of all, individuality, which we usually don't uh, 
consider uh, uh, well enough is a, a negative concept. Not, not, nothing wrong with something being negative, as we know, right? The negative dialectic uh, and so on. But it is uh, the individual is the negation, first of all, of the individual. Right, and so and there is a, uh, a claim that can be made that the individual, which is a word that we don't use that much, but it was certainly used in medieval philosophy, but even today, you know, I mean, even Deleuze, of course, uses the individual rather than individual, which is not the individual, it's the negation. And uh, the Latin word for this would be dividum. But the thing is that, uh, you know, individual seems to be, let's say, even a, in a dialectical sense, the negation of uh, the first uh, position, which is the individual, right? And then uh, we have today increasingly, I will talk about that as well, and I will uh, uh, speak about that a lot in my book also, the trans-individual. I don't know if you are familiar, I can say more about this concept, which is a great concept, trans-individuality. And let me make here the first reference to one of the philosophers I use. Uh, he's uh, Gilbert Simondon, uh, philosopher, sociologist, right? Who uh, ba basically he coined the concept of a trans individuality, trans individual, and he spoke about trans individual individuation. Now the question of what individuation is, uh, first of all, you know, it's a very long. Uh, question in the tradition of philosophy, certainly uh, I can say a little more, but we, we understand what individuation is, is what makes something the something that it is, what makes this, this and that, that, right? Something is individuated as such, okay? So, and uh, it comes from the tradition, for example, in the Middle Ages, the philosopher John Scotus the great philosopher, right, in uh, the traditional metaphysics, uh, who also theorizes the university of a being, he has this great concept called thisness, thisness, echetas in Latin, right? Which is precisely what makes this, this, rather than that. Although this is something that goes back also to the Greek tradition, uh, Aristotle, in other words, has, of, of course, had already spoken about that, right? So, but in any case, to go back to the question of uh, uh, trans-individual individuation, the way Simon Don uh, then uh, uh, formulates it, is the idea that uh, precisely, you know, that, that there is first of all a process, a constant process that goes from pre-individuality, from the pre-individual, which is uh, a plurality of uh, moments, a plurality of elements, into the trans-individual. So the individual, if anything, the individual is only a stage, right, in a process of uh, individuation, right? I don't know if this is clear. It is uh, a, sta a moment in a process that never ends of uh, individuation, right? So what really then counts is the trans-individual. Now, my claim, I'm working on this, is that actually we should perhaps think about uh, a different concept, which is what I call the trans-dividual. Because if the individual as such doesn't exist, if the individual is, uh, uh, you know, largely a fiction of a, uh, political thinking, of a political ideology, of a, again, it's the liberal tradition that gives us this uh, sovereign and uh, independent individual, then, uh, I mean, it seems to me that logically we can say that uh, we really don't uh, really have uh, the trans-individual, but the trans-individual. Basically, what seems to be an individual is actually a individual, parts of uh, a greater, if you will, a whole. I mean, even today that people speak so much about machinic assemblage, right? I mean, the idea that we are always with others. I mean, it's not only other people, but the machine, in, especially in the digital age, right, of a technology, the machine, I mean, we are always in this kind of, a, uh, you know, uh, uh, assemblage, right, of which we are only a part. Okay, so I can, I can elaborate on that as well. So it would be this trans-individual, uh, which is really the same, I uh, argue, I try to say, as a singularity. So the singular is uh, a concept that might very well 
replaced, and this would have a political revolutionary <laughs> implications, I believe, because you know we had to really uh, change also the uh, culture, the language of our politics, uh, and the thinking about this. This would have great implications. So I say that it is the singular that we should keep in mind rather than uh, the individual or even uh, the trans individual. Although, again, trans individual is not at all a, a useless concept. The idea of this, uh, I don't know if I, I, I can make more, uh, I can give some more examples about this. One, the first, then I will make some references later, but I always find fascinating. Uh, the parallel that can be made between uh, this relatively new theory of the trans individual with uh, uh, Gilbert Simondon and uh, the African concept of uh, Ubuntu. I don't know if you are familiar with that, but it's a great you know, concept, Ubuntu, U-B-U-N-T-U, in uh, Southern African philosophy, not Southern African philosophy, in the tradition, right? In that Zulu... Um, uh, language culture means uh, I am because you are. A person is uh, because of uh, and through the other people. Meaning that uh, this uh, this uh, fictional, this uh, independent and sovereign individual of uh, the tradition that uh, right modernity gives us is uh, precisely a fiction. And again, is that clear? Should I say more about this concept of uh, Ubuntu? Yes. Mm -hmm. What should I say? <laughs> well, I mean, it is precisely, you know, is one way of understanding the trans individual, or what I call the trans individual, even outside of, uh, you know, the developments that we have in modern contemporary philosophy, precisely with Simone Don. What I mean to say is that the reality, the conceptual reality of, uh, something that goes beyond the individual, something without which, a structure, let's say, a process, a structure, without which we could not even think about the individual, is there, you know, has been there even before, uh, the, uh, before Simon Don, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, formally uh, uh, formulated uh, a theory about this, right? I mean, again, Ubuntu is just one concept, you can check it, you know, you can uh, look it up, or uh, but but even uh, in so many traditions, you you know, I mean, if you will, in the Buddhist tradition, we had the idea of the trans individual. I mean, in all traditions, what I mean to say is that uh, this individual, that to make two references, for example, in uh, already modern philosophy, Spinoza attacks in the ethics, and then Nietzsche, you know, Spinoza in book. Uh, in part three of the ethics, right, uh, the beginning of part three of the ethics, uh, he speaks precisely about this prejudice that we usually have, uh, that we, the people, right, have of uh, thinking of themselves as a kingdom within a kingdom, right? So the, the sovereign individual will recognize the sovereignty of the state and so on and so forth. The king is there, but in my own life, I do as I please. I am. Uh, as then Nietzsche will say, and I'm linking Spinoza and Nietzsche, I am master of my own free will, right? And both Spinoza and Nietzsche say this is false. This is uh, fictional. And yet we do believe, right? I mean, Peter, because I know that uh, I, I always think about your critique of uh, the, the, right, the, the, the liberal right concept of the individual. I mean, uh, but it is precisely this, right? I mean, when we believe that we are you know, this, uh, uh, you know, that we are masters of our free will and that our actions are completely the results of our free choice, we are largely mistaken. We are very often mistaken. And this is, again, since I mentioned Spinoza, I spoke about the beginning of part three, but the whole, uh, you know, appendix to part one of the ethics is all about that. Or part four of the ethics in Spinoza, which is about human bondage, right? So the question of the emotions. Now, to go back, and I'm sorry about some confusion, but to go back to something that I said before, this uh, pre-individual stage of uh, this uh, multiplicity, right, multiplicity, this plurality of what we are at the pre-individual level is precisely given us by the emotions, uh, because we are emotional, affective beings, right? So, and there is this, uh, 
uh, almost uh, uh, you know turbulent, right, tumultuous uh, uh, situation in which the emotions then ultimately make us what we are. So very often, I mean, to go back to Spinoza, very often we, you know know what we desire, but we don't know what the causes of that desire are, right? So, I mean, that, that this is very important, right? Of course, in Spinoza, there is also a path into freedom and liberation then uh, in uh, part five of the ethics, just like there is in Nietzsche in many others, okay? So, but what I want to highlight again uh, is the importance of uh, changing the language, not for a terminological, uh, <laughs> you know, for the sake of terminology, but uh, for uh, the sake of uh, being conceptually more uh, clear and, and therefore uh, for uh, ultimately being able to change reality. Because, I mean, uh, like what you were saying about Despinal before, about they, they know already what, they, what uh, we want, the, the, them to die, right? I mean, and, um, but the question is, uh, of course, this is well known, and uh, in order to really be able to bring about some fundamental change, we had to go, and if I may, you know, as Marx says, uh, to the radics, uh, the roots, right? Uh, the, 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 that's the radical move, okay? So, I mean, I hope that so far what I said was not too, you know, confused. So what, what I say is the singularity, therefore, is not, as we might think otherwise, the result. You know what I mean? Of a process of individuation. I hope that this process of individuation is clear, eh? whereby something comes to be individuated as such. Okay? It's, I say singularity is not the result of a process like you know, a fixed moment at the end that never changes. I mean, everything keeps changing, right? So singularity is uh, instead this process itself. It is the process. I mean, if you will, you know, we can think about Heraclitus, you know, I mean, uh, uh, right, I mean, uh, everything changes, but change uh, remains, right? So it is the process itself that never ends, okay? So I say a process of individu individuation, which is not individualism, by the way, not even individualization, because it's complicated also by the distinction we can go into between individuation and the individualization, because individuation is not only about the human context, it's about anything, okay? Whereby at each stage everything appears to be individuated as such, to be an individual thing. Ultimately, what I'm saying is that there is no individual thing, that everything is individual, okay? So this is, uh, in reality, this process is always already plural, and uh, therefore a process of a trans-individuation, or better, as I will then explain later in my work, in any case, trans-individuation. So for now I can say that singularity is the name for this process, it is this plurality which inevitably takes on the appearance of one, and then two three, and so on and so forth. And this is the politics of number that I'm addressing as well, which is, you know, even uh, if we want to make a reference, say, to Kierkegaard, how ultimately in uh, right, the crowd and so on and so forth, that uh, uh, human beings then uh, become uh, numbers very often, okay? So I am one and then there, there is another one and so on and so forth, okay? So the quantification process. Okay, that makes, of course, uh, much easier control from on, on the part of uh, power, and let me say biopower, particularly today, right? That's made much easier by this quantification. So, but singularity is plural in its very constitution, in its concept and unfolding, namely in its ontology. Uh, singularity is never simply one, this one, and then another one, a second, and a third one, and so on. Singularity is not this one, but I say it is rather thisness with no one. Uh, I, I don't know if this is clear, I mean, I can, uh, uh, I can uh, elaborate more. So what I mean to say is that uh, to, you know, reduce anything, and certainly in the human, sphere, in the human context, to being one, that this is uh, the 
the acts of uh, you know of violence right that, that it is uh, you know in the reduction to one there is much that is missed that is no longer there of uh, the singular uh, uh, you know singular plural uh, uh, experience if you will of what we are so it is less I say it is always this reality is always less or more than a number although it always appears and becomes fixed and that means to say you know to become fixed as a number as one means to become also normalized right the process of normalization of which of course Michel Foucault speaks so much and then you know we can think make the reference again in relation to biopolitics right to be normalized and stigmatized as one you are this one and nothing more right I mean so, uh, and this is the, the, the politics of, of numbers. So I say the singularity is not even a borderline concept. It is not borderline, although, you know, I will go into, in my book, into the concept of uh, the threshold, which is so important. But I say it is not a borderline concept in the way in which sovereignty is, right? I mean, uh, both uh, Carl Schmitt, right? And then uh, George Agamben, right, they highlight this aspect of sovereignty, the sovereign as being, right, uh, a borderline concept, right? But I say that singularity is a transconceptual reality, which uh, provides uh, really the matrix for uh, this disorder. I mean, like, in a, the sense, every order is ultimately a disorder, okay? So, and it is really the, the ground, if you will, uh, you know, uh, of a, for a difference without identity. You know, the question of identity, the politics of identity that is so confusing today. But of course, identity is difference. Difference is identity. And there is actually the trans individual and the singular is difference without identity. Because identi identity is ultimately always identification. And what we usually overlook is that uh, identification is the making of something identical, which is different from something being identical, right? I mean, that's always the case. I mean, I don't want to, uh, but of course, when, when I say that I, and I am asked to identify myself in this IFY, there is always the making of something, right? Verify, verify, to make truth, make clear, and so on, to make myself identical. If I make myself identical with X, that means that there is a distance, a gap between me and this X with which I identify myself, right? So we rather at the level of sing the singular, we stay at the level of difference. We are always different, different even from, you know, I am different even from myself. I mean, because the plural constitution of what I am remains there all the time. So. And uh, so it is uh, relations, uh, then I will also deal with the question of subject, subjectivity. We can speak a little about that as well. You know, I am actually going to uh, call into question the, the, uh, the, the concept of uh, subjectivity. So I say that there is actually, we can think of a difference without identity, relations without a subject. That basically we are relations so the making of a subject, subjectivity even is a problem in many ways, uh, and I can say why. So being with, to be with, being with is always there without number. Right, L let me say a few more words about the question of the subject because I don't know how much time I have. So I anticipate in a sense something I, I was going to say later, but the concept of the subject, subjectivity, right? And of course today many people say, correctly that, uh, you know, they speak about this uh, production of uh, subjectivity, right, starting from Foucault, and that uh, we know that this, the preposition, right, of, the preposition of can be understood as uh, having a twofold uh, function and conveying a twofold type of meaning, right? I mean, active, passive production of subjectivity, meaning the subjectivities are subjected to power and they are produced by power as such through the process of institutionalization, normalization, and so on. But it is also active in the sense that uh, the subjectivities produce themselves, right? And this is actually very interesting because this is uh, also 
I mean, people who work about the question of, uh, say, the border, like, uh, you know, Etienne Baliba, uh, Sandro Mezzadra, and uh, uh, Brad Nelson, they, they say how, you know, even uh, the, the, the migrants, uh, the refugees, and so on and so forth, that they are not to be seen uh, simply as the victims of, uh, you know, something. But it is uh, also, that, and this is very important, that there is this uh, capacity of uh, producing themselves, uh, uh, right, I mean, their own being in a different way. So this is, uh, you know, the production of new subjectivities, okay? Okay, fine. But the only thing that I say, you know, the only uh, problem I have is that maybe it is no longer of uh, subjectivities that we are speaking, but of singularities, okay? So I leave that there for now, but what I mean to say is that I'm calling into question I'm calling into question the whole paradigm of uh, the subject and subjectivity, saying that uh, ultimately there is always uh, a modality of uh, subjection to a degree, okay? In, uh, all right. So then, then I, I say essentially I will use this uh, ontological notion of a uh, singularity to deconstruct the myth of uh, the independent individual and address the general theme you know, of the panel, which is really the myth of scarcity and so on, and uh, also the question of the real wealth in uh, Marx, right? Uh, the real wealth of communism The Marx uh, speaks about in uh, the Grundrisse, right? And uh, where real wealth is time uh, rather than, uh, of course, uh, money. And, and so on and so forth, okay? So in any case, I made the relation, the ref a reference to Spinoza and Nietzsche already speaking about the sovereign uh, independent individual, the fiction. Do I have a few more minutes? Can I, uh, Chris, can I say more or no? <laughs> or maybe I said too much? Chris has already gone to a computer. Okay. To get the subjectivity. Okay. Right. No, no, go ahead. Okay. Well, I spoke, I made the re a reference to Kierkegaard in relation to the politics of number. I wanted to say that the question of the ontology of singularity as a plural constitution uh, can be seen very well in the work by, say, uh, um, uh, Jean-Luc Nancy, being a singular, plural, right, where singularity is precisely the same as this plural constitution of, uh, you know, being. And, uh, uh, I, 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 of course, I made a reference to Simon Don, uh, the question of trans in individuation, and I said how I would rather prefer trans individuation. I would say that Stigler also is important in this sense, and uh, Stigler, in a sense, uh, teaches us that there is uh, really this disindividuation, right, which is always uh, at work, which is ultimately what trans individuation perhaps characterizes better than uh, trans-individuation. I mean, we are very often, certainly, in uh, modernity, in contemporary life, disindividuated uh, rather than not. So this, in other words, this individuation, I say that this individuation is kind of uh, impossible. It is like an asymptotic movement, right, that never gets there, right? I mean, it's... Uh, and of course, this links also very much, very importantly, to the question of technology, uh, about which I can say uh, um, a little more. But, but again, I, I don't know if, should I? Should you, you want me to say more? Okay, I mean, the, the question of technology, which is, of course, uh, important in uh, certainly Simon Don uh, too, and uh, the individuation and technology in Stigler, uh, but also, uh, certainly, in uh, um, Heidegger, right, I mean, uh, and uh, the question concerning technology, right, I mean, we know that uh, the problem, right, Heidegger says, is it, not with technology per se, but the technology, the techne, right, I mean, he's always speaking about the original Greek uh, meaning of uh, uh, ideas, uh, words, concepts, right? Techne technology is only one expression, one possible expression of techne. I mean, he claims that uh, techne was the same as art. Art was also techne. Not only that, but even more importantly, that uh, techne is ultimately a type of, uh, uh, it is uh, uh, right linked to, intimately linked to, and a type of a fuses, uh, right? Which is uh, the word for uh, uh, physics for uh, writing in Greek for uh, what we translate as nature 
nature, but uh, Heidegger says it is not nature, really it is uh, the, the self arising. It is that which arises by itself, right? So techne fuses, uh, then apoiesis uh, is also for Heidegger related to this. But it is because of this, uh, Heidegger says, that there is this uh, danger. I mean, the danger of technology is precisely in uh, this, in uh, the essence of techne. The, I mean, the, the Greek word is actually todeinon, I don't know if I pronounce deinon, which is the word deinon, which is the uncanny. How you spell it? Well, I mean, uh, in uh, ancient Greek, right? Todeinon, which is, you know? I mean, in, uh, in Antigone's uh, famous lines, uh, right, when uh, we read, uh, there are many wonders, many terrors, but the most wonderful, the most frightening is the human being. The most uh, frightening, the most dangerous is Todeinon, actually in the plural, in uh, the Greek, uh, in uh, the Antigone. But uh, Heidegger makes so much of this term in uh, a great book by Heidegger, uh, I mean, lectures on uh, Holderlin's in the Easter, which is, I believe, one of the greatest, right? I mean, he has a reading of Antigone as well, in which he says, that's, that's where the danger is, because it is, uh, and actually the German word would be, uh, let me see if I remember correctly, yes. Well, Unas Heimlich, uh, well, Heim would be home, right? So the unhomely, the unfamiliar, but it is this unfamiliar which is the threshold. I mean, ultimately. It's from me in Russia. Yes, yeah, exactly. I mean, a, 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 right, and the. Uh, old school literary critics came out. Right, like Sklodsky and so on. Yeah, exactly. But, and it is this, precisely, also seeing this in other traditions, they show us how. <laughs> Uh, the concept, in a sense, is uh, uh, proper, uh, real, it's not just made up, because there is this uh, being at the threshold, okay, of, uh, which is really what, sorry, one might say, uh, characterizes the human condition rather, rather than any other thing. And actually, now that I'm writing the first chapter of, of my book, I, I'm also going into Bachelard, Gaston Bachelard, who in uh, both the poem, Poetics of space and the poetic of reverie, right, speaks about this uh, the, the, the door, the, not only the home, but the door, right, being at the threshold, which is the same in a sense as being at the border, right? I mean, uh, inclusion, exclusion, and then uh, the complication of this, as we know, is also being included as uh, excluded and so on. So, but in any case, this is really what the danger is. Uh, this is where the disindividuation also happens. This is where the impossible individuation, whereby, again, once again, this, uh, this uh, 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 individual, this uh, independent and sovereign individual of the tradition is largely a fiction. I mean, I could say more. I mean, I spoke about yeah, the concept of Ubuntu. Yeah, no, one thing only, I, what I want to say is that this, uh, you know, Calling into question the, the individual of uh, the liberal tradition as independent sovereign has, uh, you know, implications in so many, uh, you know, uh, uh, I mean, the, so many traditions. You know, I, I'm thinking now of uh, the way in which uh, uh, Eva Kitei, uh, a philosopher that I often uh, mention when I or, or uh, when I write, you know, I use her book, Love's Labor. You know, I don't know if you are familiar with this book, Love's Labor, Essays on Women, uh, Equality and Dependency, she says the same, right? I mean, and uh, the whole feminist uh, and feminist Marxist tradition, right, in calling into question uh, the notion of uh, the myth of uh, the independent, right, uh, individual within the patriarchal system, that's the same idea, right? That uh, it, is, uh, a cons it is false, but as we know, with Hegel, the false is also true, right? So, I mean, it is not only that something is false, it's false, period. There is a degree of uh, uh, reality. Uh, okay, so, uh, um, um, yes. And just one, one last thing that I, you know, I'm also reading this, uh, that I use uh, this great book uh, by Paul Antoine Michel on, uh, it's an essay on uh, um, the relation between uh, the human and the biosphere. And uh, yeah, he also speaks. Love and fire. Right, That's right. The title. Yeah. 
Oh yes, exactly. And also he speaks, uh, this is a link to Bataille as well, uh, and the notion of uh, excess and so on, the notion of uh, dissipation is, uh, you know, a way of, uh, the notion whereby an open system, right, the open system that then uh, nature is, uh, he goes into, gets a, a Lucretius, uh, you know, on the natural things, the idea that the universe, the multiverse, right, is uh, an open system. Again, it goes back to this idea that uh, individuation as such is uh, impossible, let alone the making of uh, an independent and sovereign individual, right? So, I mean, that's, that's my... Uh, this is basically, in a sense, we might say that we are all fragments uh, of something, okay? Thank you. Sorry for the length. Okay.